Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is January the 28th. 2022, the end of the month, the end of a week. It's a Friday. We began the week uh, talking about race and racism, uh, and we're ending the week on the same subject. We began uh, with a conversation I had with the Harvard Law professor, Randall Kennedy, on the evolution of the N-word, uh, Kennedy's book, Nigger, The Strange Career of a Troublesome Word. It was first published in 2002, and it's been republished today, perhaps um, in terms of this troublesome word as relevant today in January 2022 as it was in uh, 2002. Earlier today, um, I had a conversation with the, uh, the British journalist Jeffrey Wheatcroft, wonderful new book out about Winston Churchill called Churchill's Shadow, The Life and Afterlife of Winston Churchill. It's quite a critical book on Churchill, although it, I think it's fairly balanced. But the one point that um, Wheatcroft made is that uh, Churchill was a terrible racist. Uh, he used the N-word whenever he was speaking of uh, people of black skins. He was pro-Jewish, anti-Muslim, anti-Indian, and very much anti-black. He saw the world in racial and racist terms as white people being superior to everybody else. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Churchill's racism in some ways doesn't seem to have gone away. We're ending the week with, quite literally, a book about talking about race. Um, my guest is Patricia Roberts Miller, uh, and she's talking to me from Austin, Texas, and she has a new book out. It's really not a book. It's more of a short piece, which has been put into a small book, very much of a pocket-sized book. Speaking of race, how to have anti-racist conversations that bring us together. I guess the subtitle could have also been how to have anti-racist conversations that don't separate us. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm thrilled that uh, Patricia is joining us from Austin, Texas. Uh, the subtitle, um, Patricia, how to have anti-racist conversations that bring us together. How do we do that? Because it's an incredibly, not only is race and racism in itself divisive, but the conversations around them seem to have become increasingly divisive in a, in a radically, troublingly, radically polarized America. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. I mean, obviously, if it were easy, someone else would have figured this out a long time ago. I think it's always been as difficult to have conversations about race. It's just that we're having more now which in a way is a good thing, but it, it is difficult. And I think it's difficult um, in the way a lot of conversations are where people assume that their goodness is at stake. We have a tendency to think about racism as something that only terrible people engage in. And so if someone says you've done something racist, we hear them saying that we're a horrible person. And so I think the first thing is to step away from identity to actions. Are you suggesting then that people who are quote unquote racist, and I, and I, and I want you to define that word because it's a controversial word in itself, mm -hmm. are you suggesting that it's, that they're not necessarily bad, that it's beyond morality? No, not that it's beyond morality, but that it is in the same way that we're all a little bit selfish, 
I mean, some people are, it's almost not selfish, but it, it's uh, that, that there's a little bit of racism in all of us. We're part of a racist culture. Um, racism comes out of a tendency to think in terms of in and out groups. So it's just very difficult to avoid. And um, so it, it, it doesn't help to think about if you were a good person, you wouldn't be racist. There are people who've done tremendously good things in the world who, who also were racist. Examples, Patricia, particular people who were racist. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, Churchill figured out about Hitler's racism, but was unable to look at his own. Um, and so you can have people, oddly enough, who are anti-racist in, in regard to one thing, but not necessarily in regard to another. The example, because he was always a great champion of the Jewish people. He was a, a philo-Semite. He was a, one of the great early supporters of the state of Israel. But he saw Jews as superior, certainly to people of darker skins and perhaps even to uh, to whites, or he saw them as whites. So his support of the Jews um, was in itself perhaps a kind of racism. I mean, obviously, he was a famous war leader who defended the so-called free world against Hitler, but that doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily make him good, does it? Um, I, I think he I think he did some really good things, and I think he, he did some really good things in regard to... Um, you know, particularly in, in regard to recognizing the issue with Hitler, there were people in his cabinet who wanted to make peace with Hitler immediately um, in, in May of 1940, 1940, right? Um, and, he's, and he refused, so that was a really good decision. So he, you know, people are not uh, entirely good or entirely bad, that most of us are somewhere in between those two things. And, and he was someone who, you know, like that. So, I mean, I, and, um, it, I would also say that it's important to point out that he was rejecting dominant narratives actually about, about race and, and how they worked. Also, his kind of um, philo-Semitism was, it, anyway, it, it, it had issues too. Um, but and I, you do and have some uh, interesting stuff in your book about um, anti-Semitism. What about an American example? What about that old chestnut of, Thomas Jefferson, for example, who famously owned slaves, and yet, particularly from a progressive point of view, his politics were, for many people at least, quite attractive. Yeah, he, uh, a slavery, so I actually did a book on slavery, a scholarly book, um, on the argument for slavery, and, and Jefferson at a certain point was actually rejected by people arguing for slavery because they, was they were embarrassed by the fact that he said slavery was bad. He said it was an evil, but he said it's like having a wolf by the ears. We've mistreated African Americans so much that they will never forgive us, and therefore, if we ever abolish slavery, there will be race war. So, is that racist or not? Yes, it is. And he he was anti-racist in certain ways, but very racist in others. And I think that's that's what I'm trying to say is that if you're if you're if you oppose racism in one thing, that doesn't mean you got to get out a racism free card that you can use in every other instance that it's it's just so pervasive um and it's so hard exactly and 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 this is the the key question which i know is hard to answer what exactly is racism um well it's it's it, it's a kind of pathologization or of of in group tendency to think in terms of in groups and out groups we have a tendency to prefer people who are like us and that's that's just a cognitive bias that everybody has. 
And what happens with racism is that we think about outgroups in terms of races, and then we tend to ca we categorize people on, on the basis of those. Um, we support systems that discriminate on the basis of race, not necessarily intentionally. There's a tremendous amount of racism that is completely unintentional. There's a fair amount that is acts of omission rather than commission. We can even try to do nice things and think that we're helping somehow, and that's actually making things worse. So, yeah, did that help? <laughs> I do what, define it. What, what is unintentional racism? Does that mean people who discriminate without knowing it? Right. Yeah. So but one way that we can engage in unintentional racism. Yeah. So one way that we can participate in unintentional racism is um, if there's a racist system and we're not doing anything about it. In addition, we can engage in racism by not thinking about people of other races. Um, and so we just assume that everybody's going to behave the same way. And it's not there's not any hostility toward the other. It's just an absence of thought. And so yet that, that, that first definition, Patricia, is is a tricky one, because wouldn't it suggest that every American before the Civil War was a racist, because they were all living in America, which was a deeply racist system, and perhaps yes. even after the Civil War? Yes, I think we're all racist. So if that's the case, why even have the word? Doesn't it become essentially meaningless? We have the word selfish. And that's the reason why we should have the word racist. Some people well, are more racist than others. Shouldn't we invent yes. better words then? No, I mean, it, um, you, can, you can talk, there, there are most things where it's a question of degree. And I, I think that's what's really useful about holding on to the word racist and also thinking that in the same way that selfish, it's not that some people are selfish and some people are, and the rest of us are unselfish. We're all selfish to certain degrees. If if someone were to say, well, if we're all selfish, then let's just go ahead and be as selfish as possible. You'd say, no, you're not getting it. That's not, that's not how this works. And well, I some think people would suggest that, and this has been an age old argument that, that in a biological sense, we're selfish. Whereas are you suggesting that biologically we're racist? Um, I'm not a biologist, so I'm not going to go there. But I, so you write about I, race, so you must have a, a position on that. Um, I think it's an it's a it's a it's a way that in group out group favoritism, I mean in group favoritism and thinking in terms of in groups and out groups, um, plays out in in cultures that have concepts of race. Is it only applied to skin color, or does it refer to everything from? political to cultural to sexual identity? Um, so, so one of the main points in the book is that it's not, I think we have to talk about it. And I don't think that there are easy answers. Again, if there were easy answers, we wouldn't be having this conversation. We would have, it would have been settled, you know, hundreds of years ago. But that, um, so that, those are things that we can talk about. At what point, for instance, does bigotry about religion um, when do we want to start talking about that as a kind of racism? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. Um, when do we want to talk about, I mean, how racist something is? Um, do we want to talk about things that had their origin racism, but we've we've lost it so much that I, I don't think it's, personally, I don't think it's useful to talk about those kinds of things as racist anymore because they're not having any impact on systemic in, inequality. And that ultimately is is what I think is the most important part about it is, is um, 
racist acts are things that create, increase, enhance, or strengthen uh, systemic inequalities. Maybe you started college but haven't finished. Are you looking for an accredited institution with a rich heritage in technology? Look to DeVry University. Founded in 1931, DeVry delivers technology-focused education that you can earn on your own time with the flexibility of online classes. Save time and money with qualifying transfer credits and reignite your career path. Scholarships and grants are available to those who apply and qualify. Visit devry.edu forward slash future to learn more. That's devry.edu forward slash future. Restrictions apply. Details at devry.edu. So anyone who isn't a socialist is a racist. Anyone who doesn't care about inequality. I mean, there are some people who simply say, I believe in a free market system. I don't care who wins and who loses. Uh, But I think inequality reflects people's natural ability. And I like a society where there are rich and poor. Are they racist? No, because it just depends. The systemic inequality has to be grounded in conceptions of race. And that means that what's racist in one era or one culture isn't necessarily the same in another. Um, if it, The example that I always use is clowns, which in the 19th century had their origin in perceptions of the Irish. But nobody knows that anymore. And we're not in a world, in the U.S. anyway, there's not discrimination against the Irish. So it seems to me clowns aren't racist. They're not, they're not reinforcing. No, but the, the reality of the world, Patricia, for better or worse, is that every free market system creates inequality. And in every free market system, some groups, sometimes Christian, sometimes Muslim, sometimes male, sometimes female, sometimes white, sometimes black, have more power than others. So it, it seems as if you're backing in to suggesting that any, any system designed to, I don't know, reward economically successful people is racist. No, you, I, I'm, I understand the, um, the confusion here, but you've introduced the concept of, of economic inequality. And what I'm talking about is if there is an, an inequality that's, if it's reinforcing a systemic inequality that is grounded in these, in a conception of outgroup that that particular culture considers racist. And the reason that's such an odd way to talk about it is that I do want to, I, I think we have to keep in mind that you can have racism about a certain group um, in one era or area that you don't have in others. So it's it's whether there's discrimination against that group in that moment. So for instance, you had in the prior to um, World War II, there was, well, in the 19th century, there was discrimination against um, Czech speakers and people who were characterized as Czech. You and mean in the United States or in the Czech? In Europe, in, in, yeah, in Central Europe. And so those, you know, so that's-, that's uh, Discrimination by whom against Czech speakers? The Germanic groups who considered themselves a different race and really weren't. And there's interesting books about that, you know, but so in, and, and that continued uh, um, in 
uh, under Nazi Germany, when not when the Germans took over that era, there was there, that area. There was that sense of discrimination against Slavic peoples, and they were considered a different, a lower grade of white, and um, and so there was discrimination against them on the part of Germanic peoples who weren't really a different race biologically, but um, you know the, there was systemic inequality, and so there there was discrimination against Slavs. There was discrimination against Slavs in the United States in the 20th century up to a certain point, but I would say we really don't have that anymore. Well, Slavs and German-speaking people were, I, I, I mean, this is, a, this is, I guess, a side issue, but there, there are differences physiologically between the Slavic peoples and the Germanic peoples doesn't justify racism in any way. Not, in those, in those areas, you, um, there was not, there were not really biological differences between people who were living right next to each other. And the difference was that some people spoke German and saw themselves as German and the other people spoke Czech and saw themselves as Czech. Well, I think whatever, this, this, this conversation has shown that this is a slippery, problematic concept. So I have a, two questions really for you, which perhaps we can address when we come back after the break. The first is why we seem so obsessed with this word racism when it's a tough word to define and everyone defines it differently. Um, and secondly, why conversations about this can fix it rather than make it worse. So we'll come back with those questions. I am talking with uh, Patricia Roberts Miller, the author of Speaking of Race. She's uh, an expert on um, on. Uh, demagoguery. Uh, she's also the author of a, another uh, small but sharp and interesting book, Demagoguery and Democracy. Uh, and we are talking about race and how to fix racism uh, with, with Patricia. We will be back after about a 60 second break. So hold tight, everyone. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen, you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening 
to my show. Now, back to Keynote. We are back with Patricia Roberts-Miller, the author of a very interesting new book, Speaking of Race, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations That Bring Us Together. We spent the first half of the show trying to figure out, define what race and racism is. It's a tricky, tricky concept, and Patricia is not the first person to try to define it, and certainly not the last either. Um, Patricia, I want to talk... After the, um, as I said before the break, I want to talk about why we live in an age where race and talking about race seems to be an increasingly central preoccupation, particularly amongst progressives. What's happened, or what? Sh- why is it happening? That's a great question. Um, I I do think it's important to keep in mind that there have been lots of other times that we, people were talking about it a lot. Obviously. Um, it tends to happen at times when there is some kind of civil rights movement going on. Um, and so, for instance, there was a lot of discussion of race right after World War One, again, right after World War Two, that eventually morphed into the civil rights movement. I, I'm not sure we ever stopped talking about it very much. But right now, I think it's the Black Lives Matter that has very much brought it to the forefront, because that's the um, and I, I think also um, Concerns about the judicial system, um, I think, in the the fact that it has um, it has become much more acceptable to call oneself a white supremacist, and so there's a lot of response to that. We had um, uh, we had um, uh, Margaret O'Mara, the historian, on the show recently. She's contributed an essay. Uh, of, a, of, a, of a new book about evaluating the Donald Trump presidency. Uh, how, how much do you think did the four years of Trump contribute to this new atmosphere of obsession with race and racism? I think his campaign did. I'm not sure it mattered whether or not he won because the um, there has been a lot of discussion about race that was dog whistle and he didn't use any dog whistles. But um, I'm, I, I think we were going to end up with somebody like him um, about since 2003. I've been thinking that we were going to end up with someone who would use demagoguery to get to the presidency. And and so a lot of that means um, there was the ground was laid for him by people who were using dog whistles. And even uh, before you, uh, your other your 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 you yeah. have been a, an academic, an expert on demagoguery and your. 2017 book, Demagoguery and Democracy, is also an interesting uh, book in this series. What is demagoguery? Is that bound up in racism or is it a parallel phenomenon? It's, I, um, I would say it's sort of the larger category um, in a way. Again, it's, it's when instead of talking about policies and actions and what we should do about something, we, we make it a, a zero-sum fight between two groups, between us and them. And so we reduce all sorts of tremendously complicated issues to us or them. And then we engage in various rhetorical strategies. Uh, projection is one, um, scapegoating. Well, politicians do that, though. I mean, Joe Biden's doing it. Um, Barack Obama did it. Uh, JFK did it. Reagan did it. By definition, that's what politics is. No, um, there's not necessarily us versus them. And there's also typically a debate about um, about politics and about policies. There's actual deliberation. So, for instance, George Bush did not engage in demagoguery. Um, the he, older Bush or the young one? Both. 
Yeah, they didn't. Um, now, there were people in his administration who did, and there were people who were engaging in demagoguery on, on his behalf. But uh, Obama didn't engage. If, if you define demagoguery the, the way that I do in the book, and that's not that different from how scholars do, then, it's, then it is a specific way of engaging in, um, in public and political discourse that not everybody does. The popular definition and popular understanding of demagoguery uh, means that everybody's engaged in it, and then it's just not really a useful concept to have. Um, Patricia, we had a very distinguished uh, physicist, Leonard Mladow, uh, Mladenau, actually a Czech, as it happens, Czech Jew, on the show recently. He has a new book out on the science of feelings. That seems to be uh, a sort of a, a new zeitgeist suggesting that feelings are somehow scientifically as significant as anything else. I know in the way in which my kids at least were taught about race and racism in school, that the, the, the experience of feeling seems central. In other words, mm -hmm. uh, when kids feel insulted, when you affect their feelings, when you insult them, is that what is that one of the reasons why race and racism is so central is because we live increasingly in a culture of the primacy of feelings. And in that sense, anyone can feel insulted by anyone at any time. And, and it's entirely subjective. Um, yeah, I, uh, well, I think, I think we've been in a sort of era of feeling since the romantics, but, um, but maybe that's just me, but, um, I'm not, that's one of the reasons I'm not wild about um, the emphasizing feelings and that the harm of, of racism is that someone intends, they feel hostility and they enact that hostility on another person whose feelings are hurt. I, I don't think that's a useful way to think about racism actually. And um, what happened in the 19th century also, you could, some people put it in the 18th century, is we started to, to define feelings as opposed to thought. And that was a relatively new way to think about, um, about how thinking works. And that's a, that's a way of thinking about it that cognitive scientists have really moved away from. It's much more complicated than that, than just, you know, you're either rational or you're irrational. And that what leads us wrong are feelings. Um, they tend to talk more in terms of cognitive biases, and I, I think that's a much more useful way to think about racism, that it's a cognitive bias. Let's talk about talking then. That's the subtitle mm -hmm. of your book. Uh, there was an interesting piece in um, the Times today, actually probably not that interesting, a typical piece uh, saying it's time for an honest conversation about affirmative action. Uh, we always see these pieces, an honest mm -hmm. conversation. We need to have an honest conversation. Conversation is everything. We had um, last year an interesting writer, Joe Kiahan, on the show. He's written a book about the importance of conversations and in particular talking to strangers. The subtitle of your book um, mm -hmm. is uh, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations That Bring Us Together. What's the value of conversations, Patricia? Why, why should we want to have conversations about race or anti-racism? Why do you have this show? You're Obviously, me. you see the value of conversations. You bring people on to talk. And um, yeah, conversations are, are, you know, are wonderful. Yeah, and we, I think uh, to be fair on this show, um, we're not necessarily looking for ends. I'm looking for entertainment rather than 
fixes. Yeah, and, and that's it's a good response, and it's a fair response. I mean, obviously, I yeah. had conversation myself. Well, and I think that, in at least in the United States, we have a very instrumental view of conversation, that if we don't reach an agreement or we don't reach a decision, that that was a waste of time, as opposed to really valuing exploratory conversations. And I think that when it comes to an issue like race, very few people are going to change their mind on the basis of one conversation. The way persuasion happens, and I actually have three degrees in rhetoric, the way persuasion happens is not the way it's presented in movies and things where you suddenly get this piece of information or you read one thing and you, you change your mind. We do change our minds, but it takes a long time. It often takes a lot of conversations. It takes all sorts of different kinds of information. Uh, people, Some people change their minds more on the basis of what their friends think, whereas some people are more moved by data. Um, so, so conversations are kind of part of understanding somebody else's point of view somewhat better and that enriches us in useful ways. Maybe we change our minds on it and maybe we don't. I, I don't see the, the goal of, of a conversation about racism. I don't think it's necessarily gonna end racism, but I think it might get people thinking about it in, in somewhat more productive ways and be a little bit more open. Um, notice also that that article uh, could have been, you know, the, the headline could have been written by Mad Libs for headline writers. Um, because, yeah, as you say, honest conversation. So we've been lying up to this point. We have been talking about affirmative action for a long time. And all and, conversations are creative. <laughs> they're not necessarily dishonest, but conversation is an art, not a science, isn't it, Patricia? It, it is, yeah. And there are lots of different kinds of conversations that we can have. We can we can have one where we're really trying to understand something. We can have ones that where the, the stakes are somewhat lower, um, we can, there are conversations that are between equals, there are ones that are asymmetric, lots of different kinds of conversations and they don't all have the same goals. But what happens with with really loaded issues and racism is just one of them. I mean, we could talk about all sorts of other ones uh, that would that I think are equally loaded. Um, and what, well, what happens- There are other ones which are as equally loaded as race. Oh, socialism. <laughs> <laughs> that you that you brought up, um, yeah. yeah I you, think you made socialism part of race in a sense. No, I didn't. No, well, no, no. Made inequality central. Okay, to here's here's the here's the definition. I, that was my bad because I I um, I didn't expect to be understood in that way. But that's it. So here's the here's the definition. Something, an act, a system, a policy, a movie is racist to the extent that it appeals to or reinforces explicitly or implicitly, consciously or unconsciously essentialized perceptions of racial, in scare quotes, groups in any way that strengthens existing political, economic, or cultural inequalities. So it's not, I, I, I don't... Um, yeah, I'll take your point. That's, that, that, you, you, that's a fair point. Um, so there was, and I, and I went through the times as always for this thing, uh, for, for this mm -hmm. interview, because there are so many relevant op-eds which touch on your book. Uh, Frank Bruni, who's on the left, writes uh, wrote a piece today saying our tribalism will be the death of us mm -hmm. um, and there was an interesting uh, report from uh, earlier this week mm -hmm. from a political scientist suggesting america is split and now it's in very dangerous territory uh, between i guess the tribe of the left and the right the levels of polarization in the united states are way higher at least according to this diagram in 2020 and 2022, than in Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, Latin America, Caribbean, Northern mm -hmm. Western Europe. 
is one of the areas of polarization, Patricia, that half the people in this country simply don't want to talk about race. They're bored with it, indifferent to it, or they simply think that 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 it's a conversation uh, which, by definition, is progressive. Um, I'm not sure. I think that is that's a really good question. I would say there are a couple problems. First off, <clears throat> I'm not wild about the left versus right. Um, I think that's self, a self fulfilling prophecy. If we just well, there is. Do- I mean, would you would you agree that America is split between two, probably between two groups of people, maybe the coastal elites and the working class. I don't know. There are lots of ways of defining it, but mm-hmm. it's a split country, isn't it? Not really. It's not as split as the media makes you think. Um, in addition, uh, I think that there's there's really a problem. It's, it's very interesting if you happen to have an opportunity to listen to political figures talk about various things. Um, I was at a conference of, a couple years ago where um, people were talking about the fact that actually Congress at that point had a fair amount of bipartisan support for all sorts of things, a parole, um, review of bail, um, various changes to the justice system. And you don't hear about those. That that doesn't, it doesn't bleed, so it doesn't lead. And so I think there's a, there's a, we're in a cycle of tribalism that's created partly by media paying so much attention to the, what we don't have in common. If you look at political affiliate, at policy affiliations that people have, it doesn't fit as neatly into left, you know, left versus right as, as people might think. So I, I feel like if we talked more about policies and actions and less about, um, about you know, us versus them, we could get past a lot of this. um, At least the New York Times piece, the research, uh, suggests otherwise. uh, I'm quoting from this piece from Wednesday. Earlier research has correctly found greater levels of prejudice amongst conservatives. Um, uh, But these studies are focused on prejudice towards liberal associated groups, minorities, the poor, gay people, and other marginalized constituencies. Do you think that conservatives are more racist than progressives, for better or worse? Um, I'm not sure. Well, first off, I, I'm trying to say that I think I think a conversation that starts with whether how conservatives are relative to liberals um, is sort of like asking, well, do you think that um, animals are more like bunnies or snails? Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure I... <laughs> I, I think the question has some flaws. Now you can go through, you, you can create all this sort of research where you ask people that question, they, you, you train them what essentially. What would be your guess, Patricia, if you were able to research a question, if you ask both progressives and conservatives or self-defined progressives and conservatives, uh, shall we say Democrats and Republicans, you ask them the question, do you want to talk about race? Do you think that a conversation about race and anti-racism is valuable? Do you think that the response would be pretty balanced all right so um i mean mean, you think i'm being difficult on this um but i think first if if you were to ask people who self-identify as conservative versus people who self-identify as and you've now used two different terms and they're very different so let's say people who vote for republican republican voters and democratic voters so there's not a question of how they identify, it's how they vote. Do you think that the balance would be about the same? Or do you think that my sense, for better or worse, is that the majority 
of people who see no value in talking about race are Republican voters versus Democrats mm. who mostly would be more sympathetic. Or is that wrong? No, I think that's wrong. But but the other thing I want to point out, because I, I really this is really important to me, this the fact that we keep talking about liberals versus conservatives, and then occasionally throwing progressives, which is a different category. Um, but is that um, if we're going to talk about the people who vote, we're leaving out about fifty percent of Americans. So that's an important thing to keep in mind about those categories. Um, now, to to go back to the issue of race, in fact, um, the conservatives talk about race a tremendous amount. And there's a really interesting book called White Identity Politics. And I don't know the author personally, but she would be a great person for you to have on. And what she showed is that there's a tremendous amount of discussion among Republican candidates about race. There might, there's probably more. Now, whether they want discussion, but the discussion you want is how to have anti-racist conversations. Yeah. Um, do you think there's as much discussion amongst Republicans on having anti-racist discussions as Democratic voters? Um, I know. Curious, I mean, here's my sense on this is that I think there are perhaps generally two groups of people in America, people who are just uninterested or bored or irritated by these discussions on race and people who want to talk about it. And that is one of the reasons why the country is so divided. In fact, we had uh, Stephen Marsh on the show last week. He's written a very controversial book on the civil war, an imminent civil war. He's a Canadian journalist. He believes that America is already engaged in a civil war. So I'm just, I'm not saying that one should or shouldn't talk about racism and anti and have anti-racist conversations. I'm simply saying that that's what in part divides Americans. I, I know, and I, I, I think I probably would have thought that too before I started looking into this. And it was really books, not, it's not the only one, but like White Identity Politics that points out how much the, the right, the conversation, you know, the Republican Party, as I said, and the and Republican, self-identified and self-promoting Republican um, media talk about race. They talk about race so much, they, but they talk about whites. And one of the things that they talk about is um, a a disturbing number of Americans believe that there is more discrimination against white people than against any other group. They also believe that white people is this really coherent sort of homogeneous group. So, um, so yeah, I think actually that that's, and that's contributed. Um, and do you to, think that, uh, and, and, uh, I mean, this is interesting stuff, Patricia, do you think that that conversation on uh, white anti-racism, that that kind of conversation is just as legitimate and important. Do you include that in your having anti-racist conversations that bring us together? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that that we should be talking, if, if we could talk coherently about what racism is, and then we could start talking about policies and what effect policies have. The way that we talk about race in the United States has a tendency to be a zero sum. The assumption is, that there are some people who are going to have to, that there are two, only two groups. And of course, when you talk about race, there aren't only two groups. Um, what, what any reasonable person is immediately gonna bring up is the issue of class and gender. Um, so you, you actually have you know, a relative, there's not just two groups that you can break this into. In addition, it's, it's not necessarily that, that um, assuming for the sake of argument that we, we have reduced everything to white versus non-white, that the gain for one group is necessarily um, a harm for the other. So 
we, th those are the kinds of things that we actually have to talk about. And we have to talk about them in terms of policies and in terms of nuance and complexity. We have to and talk about this stuff, Patricia. At least mm -hmm. that's what you're saying in your book, Speaking of Race, mm -hmm. how to have anti-racist conversations that bring us together. You've been very, very patient with me. I've been interrupting you and peppering you with critical questions. So let's end with you very briefly in, in two or three minutes explaining how we can have these anti-racist conversations. Um, I think that, so one problem with the, some of the conversations we've been talking about is that they are um, inflating, they're amplifying. You you talk to people who already agree with you and work yourself up. And that's what happens. Echo when you chamber talk. conversation. Sorry? Echo chamber conversation. Exactly. It's yes. really a conversation. It's simply saying the same thing, which is the yeah. opposite conversation and um, and then what happens is you you start to perform loyalty to the other people by saying more extreme things so that's how that that's how those kinds of in you know in-group enclaves um, create demagoguery they end up in in, in demagoguery so and to, uh, sorry to keep on jumping in here but so what you're saying is that we need to talk to people of different opinions exactly that's Kahane's point and there are several others that it's books that yeah. make that We've had some of those actually on the show. Yeah. But that's, again, it's sort of chicken and egg. No one wants to talk about people from other groups. No. It's, do, do we force them to, to, to do it? Do we have town hall meetings? Do we require no, the voters? No, those don't work either. No, I mean, I, I think that um, also be, what happens with a lot of media is there's, there's what's called inoculation, which is that you are given a weak version of the other argument. So there's only one other argument. And so when you meet somebody who says something that indicates they disagree with you, you attribute to them that, that really weak argument. And so we walk into conversations thinking we know what the other person has to say and thinking we can't learn from it. And that's how we end up yelling. But if we walk into conversations the way you actually have, which can be challenging, you know, you, you challenged me and that's, that's good, that, that a good conversation does that. Um, but if, if we challenge each other and, and at the same time listen to each other, it doesn't have to be a love fest, we can disagree. But as long as we're gonna listen to each other and make sure we understand each other and, and what we're saying. Now that can be too threatening. And so one of the things I think is super helpful is um, we have this extraordinary media. We have the internet. It used to be hard to find people's points of view that disagreed with you. You had your, your paper, right? But um, it is for people actually to go out and try to find the smartest opposition arguments. Yeah, and, 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 you, and you, you're an example. I think I've been slightly aggressive in this conversation, but you've been very reasonable and patient with me i've been peppering you with questions so i think you are not me but you are the model for this patricia i want to congratulate you on maintaining your call and <laughs> defending your position and, and articulating an, a really interesting argument about anti-racist conversation uh, the book is so short it can be read uh, in an hour and i think it's 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 worthy reading a central reading at our time of division in addition to your new book, uh, Patricia, uh, Speaking of Race, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations that Bring Us Together. I know you're in Austin, Texas in late January. I'm sure it's nice and warm there like it is in San Francisco. What else should people be reading? Um, well, I, I will say that uh, Library of America has come out with a really good collection of James Baldwin's writings. Um, mm. And I've, I've been rereading those and it's really fun to, to read them together. As I mentioned, before, I wish Baldwin was still around. So many people recommend him. He seems to yeah. be someone who can 
who, who was able to bridge the divide and really talk oh. to everyone there. We need more Baldwins or new Baldwins. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then I um, I think I mentioned before that I'm rereading uh, P.G. Woodhouse, which is just ah. always a pleasure. Just hey, mind, I think uh, Churchill enjoyed P.G. Woodhouse. Uh, Churchill could, of course, have been a character in a P.G. Woodhouse. Yes, yes. <laughs> there definitely are ones who remind me of him. Um, on the on the darker side, I'm also reading a book that came out a few years ago that's just extraordinary, very difficult, and it's called The German War. And it's about the support of of sort of everyday Germans for Nazism, and it's um, it's it's as I said, it's very disturbing, but it's it's beautifully researched. And who's it's, it by? Um, Stargardt. He's German, and and um, but it, he writes in English. I think he teaches in I, he teaches in England. I can't remember. I think it's Oxbridge, but I can't remember which one. But yeah. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Patricia, you've, you've done a good job uh, articulating an incredibly important subject. There are no easy answers. If there were, there wouldn't be need for conversations or books on it. Right. Patricia Roberts Miller, author of Speaking of Race, a new, it's essentially a pamphlet, um, but a, a, a very readable and interesting and relevant pamphlet, Speaking of Race, how to have anti-racist conversations to bring us together. Been very kind about the show. I hope this conversation has done something to at least think about race and anti-racist conversations. And we'll have to have you, I know you're writing a book now about war, Patricia. So perhaps uh, when that book's done, if it's a pamphlet or a longer book, I'd love to have you back. You've been, uh, you've been an exemplary guest, a very civil <laughs> and civilized guest, and, and someone really able to articulate in practice, not just in theory, the value of conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. This has been fun. <laughs>